people of God, this morning we continue our morning worship series, our morning sermon series on our identity as God's covenant people. And that identity that is sealed and signed and confirmed for us in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as our companion throughout this series, we are looking to the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the three forms of unity that unite Reformed Christians around the world. And today we are going to be uh, reciting together Lord's Day 26 on baptism. And so I will ask the question and you may respond all together with the answer. People of God, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing, and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity that is all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ, so that more and more we become dead to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the waters of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the letter of 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. It's right toward the end of the Bible. One of the last books of the Bible. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and then Revelation, the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. And as we prepare now to hear God's word, let's come before him in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. And for the gift of the confessions which summarize your word. We thank you that in these words you reveal yourself to us as our God. And you reveal our identity as your people. 
And Lord, we pray now that as we read your word, as we read this letter from the apostle to his church, that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, the spirit who you promise us in baptism. We pray that you would send us your spirit to open our eyes and to open our ears and to open our minds and to open our hearts to all that it is that you would have us see and hear and know and believe. Transform us more and more, we pray, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. First John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The Apostle writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, I have preached on baptism a number of times here in my four years at Community Christian Reformed Church. And if there's one thing that I've learned over my time here, it's that baptism is a rich and beautiful, multifaceted sacrament, a sign and seal that teaches us so much. When we celebrate the sacrament of holy baptism, we celebrate the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as water washes away the dirt from our bodies, so certainly our sins are washed away. We celebrate in baptism our adoption into the family of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We celebrate in baptism our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. 
We celebrate God's deliverance from bondage to sin, just as the Israelites in the Old Testament were delivered across the Red Sea, escaping the might of Pharaoh and Egypt. We celebrate our salvation from death and judgment, just as Noah and his family were saved from the waters of the flood. We celebrate our calling as God's people, our identity as children of our Heavenly Father, our participation in the promises of God, in the victory he has already secured over the enemies of sin and death. In baptism, we celebrate newness, newness of calling, newness of identity, newness of life. And it is precisely that newness that we celebrate in baptism that might cause the words of our catechism to catch us a little bit off guard. The authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, a document that is normally so warm and comforting and personal, when it comes to the sacrament of baptism, seems maybe inordinately focused on Jesus' blood, the blood of the sacrifice shed on the cross. For the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism, baptism is all about blood. It is the blood of Jesus that marks us as God's children, the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins, the blood of Jesus that unites us to our Lord in his death and resurrection. It's all about the blood. And this might seem to us, perhaps, to be disproportionately morbid. Baptism is supposed to be about our identity as God's people, his children. Baptism is supposed to be about our participation in Christ's work of new creation. Baptism is supposed to be about babies and conversion and stories of new life and faith and God's promises. But in these questions in our catechism about baptism, the writers seem in some ways to downplay the victory of God and the reality of new life and focus their teaching on the death of Christ, on the blood of Jesus. Last Sunday, Pastor Betsy led us through 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul reminds the church in Corinth about the basic truth of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter, and to the twelve, and to many other believers. Pastor Betsy told us that Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, is combating a dangerous teaching in the church of his day, that the body really doesn't matter. That what matters really is our souls. Paul's opponents in the church in Corinth seem to be teaching that God is really just interested in our souls, in our spirits, in our spiritual life. And so it doesn't really matter then what we do with our bodies. But Paul reminds them, reminds these Christians in Corinth of the truth of the gospel. That Jesus came in the flesh, that he died in the flesh, that he was raised in the flesh, that our bodies matter to God. 
Our passage today is written by a different apostle, the Apostle John, to a different church, traditionally in Ephesus, across the Aegean Sea from Corinth. And in John's church, there seems to be a related controversy going on. It seems from John's letter to his church that there are people in his community who are downplaying the importance, downplaying maybe even the reality of Christ's death. And when we think about it historically, even when we think about it today, it can kind of make sense. The idea of a crucified God in the ancient world is really kind of embarrassing. Even in the ancient world where there were, where there were a few myths of gods who had died and been raised from the dead, none of these gods were executed as criminals. That was a scandal, that was embarrassing in the pagan world. The passion, the suffering, the death of Christ, which makes up a large chunk of all four of our Gospels, is really a kind of depressing story. Jesus is mocked, beaten, tortured, whipped, spat upon, put through a rigged trial, paraded through the city, and executed with common thieves. Jesus' humiliation in the Gospels is so utterly absolute that he cries out from the cross. Cries out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The death of our Lord is a dark story, a tragic story. And many people in the ancient world, and some people even today, saw the story of Jesus' suffering and death as a real downer. And they kind of said to themselves, like, maybe it would be all right if we just focused on the positive parts of the gospel, the positive aspects of Christ's life his example. And so instead of all this focus on blood and death and sacrifice, let's focus on Jesus' calling. Let's focus on Jesus' life, on the example that he set for all believers. Let's focus on Jesus' calling, his anointing, and how we share in his anointing, how we share in his victory, in his resurrection, in his holiness. And that's what some people in John's church seem to be saying. That's what probably lies behind the apostles' words in verse 6 of our passage today. This is the one who came by water and blood, the apostle writes. Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Many Christian scholars understand the water and the blood in this passage as referring to Jesus' baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist, the water and Jesus' death on the cross, the blood. And if we understand the apostles' words in this way, we can see that perhaps what is going on in John's church is that there are some people who are holding Jesus' baptism as the center, the focus of the gospel story. And that would be easy enough to do, right? 
Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist in the Jordan River is an epic enough story to hold as crucial to the gospel, central even. John, the new Elijah, calling God's people to repentance, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, preaching the gospel of repentance, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And here comes Jesus, the Son of God, God's chosen Messiah. And he steps into the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And he tells John, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. And he goes down into the waters and he rises from the depths and the heavens are torn asunder and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven declares, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And it would be easy enough for us to build a powerful meaning for baptism out of this story. It's not even difficult. We could, we could construct a catechism-style question and answer for it. Question. How does holy baptism remind and assure you that the promises of God benefit you personally? And the answer. In this way. Christ instituted this outward washing by his example when he was baptized in the Jordan in order to fulfill all righteousness. By following his example, I am united with him in his anointing and calling, and am assured that God, the God of heaven forgives my sins, sends me his spirit, and is pleased with me as a father with his child. Isn't that nice? A gospel free of suffering, free of the gruesome morbidity of the cross. It's that easy to create a blood-free gospel. The people who John is writing against argue their case from Scripture. They claim to have the testimony of the Holy Spirit the words of God himself. They seem to have scripture on their side. They simply choose to focus on a different part, a central. Let us speak of life, not death. But this is precisely why John sees his opponents as dangerous. Because they are using scripture in a powerful way that appeals to God and doesn't scandalize them with a crucified God. They are using a sanitized gospel by sidestepping parts of the gospel story. And the part of the story that they're sidestepping isn't just any part of the story. John believes that the crucifixion of Jesus, Christ's death on the cross, is the center of the gospel story. At the core of 1 John is the claim that God sent his son into the world to accomplish by his sacrificial death 
atonement for sin, salvation from death, and familial fellowship with God. And this is a claim that lies at the center of the proclamation of New Testament witness. For John, the physical bodily sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the center of the gospel. God's love, God's law, God's spirit, God's people, God's promises, God's victory. For John, all of these, all of these converge like spokes of a wheel upon one central hub, the death of our Lord the crucified, incarnate Son of God, who went deep into death and was raised up Lord of life to accomplish victory over death and sin and offer us the gift of holiness and everlasting life. People of God, without death, there is no resurrection. And without resurrection, we have no hope in this life. If Jesus did not die, then he was not raised from the dead. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then the enemies of God and his people have not been defeated. Death and sin have won this world. Here is the truth of the matter. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, Jesus Christ, who died and was raised from the dead. He has defeated death. He has won the victory over sin and hell, he has broken the powers and principalities of this dark world, and in him there is forgiveness of sin and newness of life, even life everlasting. Christ is not simply a good moral example for us to follow. He is our champion. He is the conqueror of death. And it is in his victory that we stand by grace, through faith. By this faith, given to us by the Holy Spirit, confirmed in the sacrifice of our Lord, we are made children of God. And this is a teaching that's repeated throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul talks about how we are adopted as sons and daughters of God and heirs with Christ. The Apostle Peter talks about how God forms and shapes a people by his promise and its fulfillment in our Lord. But the Apostle John uses a unique word here to describe our adoption, the formation of a new people. And the word that he uses is a word that throughout the rest of the Bible is only used about Jesus Christ. And the word in Greek is gegenemenon. 
Can you guys say that with me? Giganamanon. Giganamanon. Good job. This side won. <laughs> Giganamanon in older translations is translated as begotten. Begotten. Like when we hear that Jesus is God's only begotten son. Giganamanon. And the Apostle John here uses this word for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is begotten of God. Everyone who trusts themselves to Jesus is born of God, born anew. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, and in our baptism, God's promises are a yes for us as well. As surely as water washes away dirt from our bodies, so certainly Christ's blood and spirit wash away all of our sins. As surely as our bodies go down into the water and are raised up again, so certainly Christ's blood and spirit shape us to daily die to sin and be raised to a new and holy life. There are three who testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. Not the Spirit only, not the water only, but the Spirit, the water, and the blood. By Christ's death and resurrection, he has secured for us the victory. And in his victory we stand by faith. Everyone born of God, everyone begotten of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Before we ever open our mouths to respond to God's grace, God, by His Spirit, has already borne witness to this great truth through Christ's one and only sacrifice on the cross, signed and sealed in our baptism. And the effectiveness of God's testimony is manifested in the gift of faith by which we are begotten of God dying to sin, and rising to everlasting life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank you that by your blood and spirit, you have washed us and made us clean. We thank you that by your blood and spirit, you are transforming us more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
We thank you that by his blood and spirit, we are begotten of God, children of our heavenly Father, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. And we pray that your spirit would continue to inspire faith in us, the kind of faith that can endure the heat of day and the dark of night, so that throughout this life we may bear witness to the testimony of the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and ascended Son of God until the day that he comes again. In his name we pray.